Matthew chapter 10 this morning. You can make your way there. And as you get there, I wanted to just take a few minutes to uh, address a little bit more about our pastoral examination process that is upcoming this evening at 6 o'clock. This is the examination for the potential of Nathan Williams being the pastor for ministry development here at Grace Church. And through the last couple of months or weeks that this has been kind of floating around as public knowledge that this process would be taking place, there have been a few questions that have come up repeatedly. And so I wanted to just publicly address, briefly address, uh, some frequently asked questions about this process. And I hope that these will clarify some things for you if there's confusion and uh, they won't generate uh, another list of questions for next week. But hopefully these will be a help to you. One of the questions that has repeatedly come up, probably the most common question has been, why do we, why does Grace Church need another pastor? And that's a very fair question. Uh, That's a question that really we don't get the prerogative to answer on our own. Uh, We have to go to our scriptures for the definition of what pastors are and then consider the scriptures definition and the role of a pastor to our circumstances. And so that's a very fair question. Why do we need another pastor? We are convinced that it would be within our church's best interest to add to our pastoral team because there is ministry that is not being accomplished. You say, well, do you mean by that that there's ministry that a pastor should be paid to do that isn't happening? And the answer is really no. Ministry is not being accomplished. In other words, you are not being facilitated, equipped, and mobilized in the way that some of you could be if there was additional equipping leaders here within our body. And of course, we know from Ephesians chapter 4 that the pastor's role is not to accomplish all of the work of the ministry, but as an example to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. And so we really believe that the need for another pastor is wrapped up in the excitement that in the momentum that we see for broadening ministries here at Grace Church. We are extremely young and yet we are Really excited about many of you who have come. You bring gifts, you bring skills, you bring insights, and we want to equip you with careful instruction and our philosophy of ministry and then unleash you to do ministry for the glory of God and for the growth of his church and for his people. And so the primary reason, the primary burden that has led to our examining the opportunity or the potential for another pastor has been the need um, Just to put your minds at ease, it's not because Nathan needed a job and called us for a good guy favor and said, can you fit me in? Uh, We were looking for and praying about the opportunity to have another pastor on our team who could give himself entirely to the equipping role. And um, Nathan came to the surface as a potential candidate for that. So this pastoral role will expand the body's ministry. Some of the untapped ministry opportunities that exist for you all are college and singles ministries, student ministries, music ministries, men's ministry, women's ministries, senior ministries, you name it, opportunities for us to equip you to do the work of the ministry in these various settings where some of you have a a God-given desire to serve. You have God-given skill set and giftedness to serve. And for you to be faithful in your ministry as a believer here at Grace Church, it is our responsibility in God's perfect plan to equip you and unleash you for that. And there simply is 
already too much to be done with too few hours in a day and too few people to accomplish that equipping work. And so we've been praying that God would bring another equipper onto our team. So that is the reasoning behind why we need another pastor. It's not so that we can get more professionalism around here. It's not so that we can have another guy that can do more of the ministry, but it's so that we can bear up together, three of us instead of two of us, in equipping and mobilizing you to be faithful in the ministry here at Grace Church. And we want to see that happen. We want to see this ministry explode with all of you actively involved in your giftedness, serving your Christ for the betterment and the growth of his kingdom. And uh, we feel confidently that that is your desire as well. And so we want to facilitate that through pastoral equipping leadership. Question number two that has come up, why is Nathan Williams the guy that's being examined? How in the world did this guy end up being the guy that is here for this weekend and for all the way into June, uh, the end of June? Why is Nathan being examined? How did this how did this happen? Did we get a stack like many of you are dealing with right now? Did we get a stack of resumes and applications for a job? And we leave through them and something caught our eye on the application. And we said, oh, that's interesting. I think we'll ask this guy above all the rest. No, that's not what happened. Nathan has filled out no application. Uh, He's not even sent us his resume, believe it or not. Um, And there's a reason for that. The reason that he hasn't filled out an application and hasn't sent uh, a resume is the same reason that he is at the top of our list. And that is because David and I, and particularly in my life, I have known and loved and been a part of Nathan's spiritual growth for nine years. Um, Way back when Nathan came as a freshman to Bob Jones, we immediately uh, found a connection with the hardwood, a leather ball, and a rim. And uh, from that relationship, the Lord expanded our opportunity to grow in grace together and I have had the, the privilege, really, and the joy of watching him grow, watching him develop, watching his gifts come to uh, maturity and seeing him train. So Nathan is loved by us, your pastors. And that is why he's the first one on our minds when we think of, could the Lord provide another pastor? Would this be what the Lord has for us? Let's start with Nathan. Um, the analogy that I've used with others is that It would be like the Apostle Paul and knowing that there's a ministry opportunity in Ephesus, knowing that there's a need for ministry in Ephesus. And he says to himself, who can I send to Ephesus? He did not put out a memoir on the uh, Internet, uh, getting around Asia at the time, asking for applications and resumes. He instantly thought there is one person that I want to start with, and that is my son in the faith the one who I have nurtured and discipled, Timothy, and I'll send him. He's the top of my list because he is closest to me and I'm most confident of his growth and his gifts and his abilities and his commitment to Jesus Christ. Similarly, um, Nathan was the first to come to our minds and he has not left that. That's why he's with us. On top of that, he has exceptional training. Nathan has been a part of Community Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina under the tutelage of Pastor David Whitcomb, who is my mentor in ministry and preaching, who's been with us here. Many of you have sat under Pastor Whitcomb when David was ordained. Um, He went from there to Grace Community Church, where he has served faithfully under the pastoral leadership of John MacArthur and the elder team at Grace Church. He has specifically been serving there in the 180 ministry, which is the high school ministry, 
shepherding the young people, caring for a Bible study of young people. And uh, if you remember, last year, I believe sometime, uh, his Bible study came up here and did a little retreat and came to church. And right in this section, there was just a whole bunch of teenagers all of a sudden. And, uh, and they were all taking notes and doing the things that Grace Community teenagers do. And Nathan is a part of that leadership and shepherding. And he has had an exceptional opportunity in local churches, beginning really, I guess, back at Timberlake Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, where he was uh, saved and where he was mentored in the ministry. He's also had a tremendous heritage in his education. He's training uh, educationally for ministry with Bob Jones University, placing the foundations, the fundamental doctrines before us, and then the Master's Seminary just being the epitome of an opportunity to grow and develop. And he's excelled in that training. And so that has made him rise to the top. Um, He's been commended to us by his elders at Grace Church, where he has been serving for the last four years. Um, Austin Duncan and Chris Hamilton, both of whom some of you know, uh, have highly commended Nathan's giftedness and his faithfulness to the Lord and his skill set and recommended him as a candidate for this role. And then the last thing that has made Nathan the guy that we have settled on at this point to examine and to see if God would be directing their family here and our family towards them is that Nathan is a generalist and not a specialist. And uh, we haven't talked about this probably publicly, but our pastoral focus, because of the equipping role and because of the life-on-life role that we view in pastoral ministry, while we have specific skills and gifts that are unequal to each other, we carry an equal load of responsibility for the caring of the flock that's in our charge that Andy read to us about in 1 Peter chapter 5. Our desire is not to add specialists, Um, professionals who are skilled in one aspect of the ministry in a church. And Nathan has exhibited a generalist approach to ministry, um, working hard on his skills in teaching and preaching, as well as counseling and shepherding, caring life on life for believers, and then stewarding wisely the skills that the Lord has given him outside of that, including music abilities and other things. And so with Nathan's giftedness being in that broader sense, we felt that it would be the right starting place to ask Nathan to come. And we have, not, we have not moved beyond Nathan. We're going to examine him. We're going to let this process have its effect. And then we'll move forward from there. Whether the Lord directs us together or directs us apart, we're confident that the Lord will direct our steps. That leads to the third question that's come up. Is this process real or is Nathan a shoe in And this is just kind of a hoop we're going to jump through. And uh, you're all just sitting there as kind of the spectacle goes on. And this isn't really real. I mean, come on, Adam, he's been your friend for nine years. Really? Are you going to tell him that he's not going to come if that's what the Lord directs? And uh, I can assure you that this process is real. In fact, this process is more thorough and more intense than any process I've ever heard of, let alone experienced. I'm scared for him um, because I can only imagine what he's about to go through in these next weeks. Um, It's very real, and we really do have confidence that this is how God will direct us. This is how God directs our steps. He doesn't zap us with lightning. He no longer speaks to us and gives us a Damascus Road experience. He gives us his word. He guides us by his spirit, and he allows the careful faithfulness to carrying out what his word has given us to be the direction. The desires of our hearts will be given to us as we walk faithfully with him. And we're confident of that in Nathan's life. That will be true in his life. God will direct their steps and he will direct ours as a pastoral team as well. We're hoping that those go in the same direction. 
Um, that would be a little difficult if one of us is being led one way and the other one is being led the other way. But we're confident that God will bring those two together. And we will, we will clearly know what he has for us and for them at the end of this process. Or at the end of this process, we'll know that we need to know more than this process is allowed. And we'll continue that examination step by step until we're confident of what the Lord has given to us as his way. Okay, so this lets us lead you with knowledge and with confidence. And uh, our genuine prayer is that if this is not what God would have for us, that would be painfully obvious. And it probably will be painful in its obviousness. And if this is what God would have for us, that that also would be joyfully obvious to all who are involved. So be praying about this, please. And this is something you can genuinely be praying for because we are genuinely examining a pastoral candidate who may or may not join our team shepherding you loving you, teaching you, and equipping you for ministry. So this is a very real, real situation. So all those things have been asked. Maybe those uh, open up more questions, but I hope that those answer some and give you a little bit of an understanding of where we're coming from. We began praying, David Morris and I began praying about this, actually with Dave Muxlow, I believe about 10 months ago. So this is not something that last week we decided, you know what, let's think about adding somebody. And Nathan's graduating, so let's, uh, let's call him up. This is something that we have been praying and desiring and seeking the Lord's face. And uh, he's laid this opportunity before us, and so we want to shepherd this opportunity to its fullest. And we'll see what the Lord has for us in that. Okay? I hope that's helpful to you. Let's pray, and then we'll get to Matthew chapter 10 this morning. Gracious Father, We surrender ourselves this morning before you. We surrender this process that we are beginning with Nathan. Before you, we genuinely commit ourselves to your direction and your plan and your leading. Wisdom from many sources who will help us to think clearly and help us to ask the right questions and to look to the future growth and development of the ministry that you have established here at Grace Church. We are dependent entirely upon you. Without you and without your spirit's involvement, we are wasting our time. This is futile. So we confess that we need you in this process. But in the immediate, right here, in the next moments, we are equally in need of you. We we confess that apart from your spirit's work in our hearts and And the understanding that he gives and the awareness of application that that he accomplishes through the word. That that our study of your word is futile. It's like looking in the mirror and then walking away and, and right away forgetting what we saw. And so we desire for our lives to be conformed to the image of your son. And we confess we cannot accomplish that on our own. We need grace in these moments. To see clearly what your word has for us. To see clearly what our Savior has said in this text. Which your spirit inspired in its record and has preserved for us and will preserve for eternity. We acknowledge these truths. We pray as well for those who may be among us who have no eyes to see. They have no ears to hear. They have no hearts to understand. I pray that your gospel, the good news of your son would break through their stony hearts, crushing them under the weight of the guilt of their sin to the point where they will look in faith at the accomplished cross work 
of your Son, Jesus Christ, and be saved even this morning. We ask for these things according to your will and in submission to you, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Let's read this together if you have it open there in your lap. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We are coming to the concluding portions of this 10th chapter in Matthew's gospel record. And we have been examining some central truths that we have come back to again and again and again each and every Lord's Day morning for the sake of properly understanding each paragraph in its context, in its setting in which it was recorded. Matthew clearly has an agenda. He has an agenda that is given to him by the Holy Spirit as he moves him along in the writing of Holy Scripture. It seems that Matthew's agenda, Matthew's focus, his theme throughout this chapter beginning really at the conclusion of chapter 9, is on the central reality that the kingdom citizens also are to be engaged in a kingdom mission. That Jesus Christ does not simply redeem a people unto Himself to come together on the Lord's day and worship Him. Surely, He has saved us to worship Him. And that will be our eternal situation. But He has redeemed us and He has preserved life on this earth in this sinful creation. Not just for the purpose of worshiping Him, though that is our highest priority, but that the outworking of our worship would be the mission of the kingdom. That is the proclamation of the good news that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah who has come to offer forgiveness to sinful humanity who will repent, turn from their sin, and believe. We are engaged in that mission. So I wrote out some bullet points that we've been reminded of over and over and over again. Christ followers are Christ proclaimers. The Bible doesn't know any distinction between Christian and missionary. It's one and the same. Christian is missionary. Those are synonyms in Jesus' understanding of his people. And he calls upon the disciples at the end of chapter 9 to pray for more laborers more kingdom missionaries who will go into the harvest field that is so ripe, take the gospel to the lost so that they can be saved and brought to worship their creator. So Christian fo- or Christ followers are Christ proclaimers. Secondly, Christians are missionaries, all of them, whether you are a local missionary or a global missionary. So think about this. We've used the airplane analogy before. Somebody says to you, what do you do? Standard question. Standard answer is your vocation. 
maybe, just throwing out an idea, this is no Holy Spirit-initiated application, but maybe it would be interesting for you to tell them that you're a missionary. You're a missionary. You're a Christian missionary who also happens to be a farmer. You're a Christian missionary who also happens to be a pharmacist, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a mom. I'm a missionary. Really? I thought missionaries were the people that went overseas, that went from one country over to somewhere. Those are global missionaries, but Christ has no distinction between Christians and evangelists, between Christians and missionaries. Some are more gifted than others. Some will be more skilled than others, but all are equally responsible. Christians are therefore on a mission. Contra a program for evangelism. Sometimes we are asked, what programs do you do for evangelism? Do you have Tuesday night door knocking? Anybody remember Tuesday night door knocking or some other night? Yes, that's, that's part of my past. Tuesday night visitation is what we called that. And it was an opportunity for people to come together and to go out into the community and share the gospel. Nothing wrong with that, except that often that becomes the checkbox that finishes our mission to carry the gospel to the lost people. So it becomes the opportunity for us to feel as if we are faithful because we attended Tuesday night door knocking. Christians are on a mission, period. Every day, every moment, every experience, every trial, every blessing, every job opportunity, all of those are opportunities for you to engage in the mission of your king, which is the proclamation of the good news of his person and work. So this has been the consuming message that has gripped us in chapter 10. The disciples are the first 12 kingdom missionaries, and they're going on a short-term mission out into the Jewish communities. They're not going to deal with Gentiles. They're not going to take bags. They're not going to take extra clothes. They're not going to get money for their labors. They're going to go from place to place to place. And yet Jesus looks beyond, beginning in verse 16, he looks beyond the 12, and he gives us clear instruction that infers and implies that all of us are engaged in this kingdom mission who are identified as his kingdom citizens, the church. The church is the assembly of believers who are on a mission for Christ. And we gather on the first day of the week to be encouraged to worship our Savior together, to gain provocation, to live for him on this mission. But we are the believers assembled who are missionaries for Christ. And then finally, in the most recent study, we have found that if we are actually engaged in that kingdom mission, persecution is right around the corner. David said this week, it's kind of like trials, persecution. Either you're in it, you just came out of it, or you're getting ready for it if you're a believer who's being faithful to your kingdom mission. That's accurate. Because the world will respond with violence towards the message of Jesus Christ purely proclaimed, not cutting corners. The exclusive message of Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. The only way of eternal life will still garner persecution even today in our postmodern culture, where absolutes are unacceptable unless that there is no absolutes. So persecution should be the expectation. It is a reality. It's an inevitable reality at some point if we are faithful to the kingdom mission. So with that background, we come to verse 26 
and we are, we are made painfully aware of the big idea of this paragraph. And this is not news to you because we started this last week. Fear of expected opposition to the kingdom mission must be driven out for the believer by belief in the promises of Jesus the King. So what happens in verses 26 through 33 is Jesus says, these things are true, therefore there should be no fear. And so we, we can clearly see that fear in the face of persecution is not a personality trait. It's not a, it's not a character flaw. It's a theological problem. And Jesus says it needs to be eradicated by belief in what he says. So if the word of God is true, if the words of Jesus are trustworthy, if this word is really the living word of God for you and it is the source of the mind of God to you, then belief in these words, in this paragraph, should drive fear from us in the face of, no doubt, being persecuted for the sake of the kingdom mission. So we started with the first two truths that come right out of this text. In verses 26 and 27, we saw last week that the truth will be exposed. So be bold. The truth will be known. If you're persecuted in secret, it will be exposed. If you speak the truth in secret, ultimately the truth will be exposed. You know it. You know that in the end it will be shouted. So go out and get on a housetop and declare it in boldness without fear. Jesus clearly says that because the truth will be known in the end, the believers should be emboldened to take it now in public. He commends us in verse 28 with a second reality. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so the truth will be exposed, so be bold. And secondly, the enemies will be destroyed. You know the sovereign one who holds eternity in his hands. So why would you fear any other but him? The enemies will be dealt with. Be bold. Have no fear. Carry on in your kingdom mission. We find two more. This week, and we'll conclude our study beginning in verse number 29. We find the final two truths that Jesus provides as the theological bedrock that eradicates fear. It wipes fear out. You're struggling with fear in the face of gospel opportunities like I do. These are the theological truths that can overcome that fear. These are for you, kingdom citizen. Here they are. Number three. Our third truth that comes from our text is found in verses 29 down through verse 31. The truth will be exposed. The enemies will be destroyed. And thirdly, the missionaries will be valued. The missionaries will be exclusively valued. There is a unique sense. There is a special way in which the father loves his children and his children are the kingdom citizens, and his children are the kingdom missionaries. And so Jesus provides this powerful word picture for us, not unfamiliar, because we saw the same truths used to wipe out worry back in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus comes back to the same picture. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, verse 29 says, but but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Easier on some than others. Verse 31. Fear not, therefore. It's okay, we can laugh occasionally. Fear not, therefore. 
you are of more value than many sparrows. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, let's look at the word picture that he gives to help give us the courage in the face of persecution. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Um, This is one of those times where we have a big gap that hurts us in our Bible study because it's been a long time since two sparrows were sold for a penny. In fact, we don't even really know if penny is the right word because we're sitting here thinking that's got to be a different kind of coin. And we're sitting there thinking, I don't know what Jewish sparrows are. So we have this big gap. We haven't bought any recently to eat. I don't think you have. If you have, let's talk because we can care for you and help you. And if you've bought them for a penny, let's really talk. All right. So we haven't done this. We have a cultural gap that really hurts us. Let me give a little bit of an understanding of what Jesus is saying here. He's really giving the pathetic value or the 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 very minute value of these little sparrows. Sparrows were the small and insignificant bird that you still know them to be. I think of sparrows as barn swallows. I remember when I lived on a cattle farm for a while when I was a kid and I was overworked and like sweatshop labor. I remember going into the barn, butchering cows, stacking hay at nine years old. I remember that we had these birds that lived inside and they were worthless. They were these little sparrows and they would make their nest all inside of the barn and there were seemingly hundreds of them in there. That's the similar kind of bird that we're talking about here. There were small, insignificant birds that could be caught and eaten. Not a lot of meat on the bone, but it could be eaten for relatively cheap if you were in a starvation situation. Now, listen to this. A penny represents here one-sixteenth of a day's wage. So you've heard of a denarius or a denarii. Denarius is a day's wage for a soldier. This is one-sixteenth of a day's wage. In other words, this is 0.44 of a cent. You could get two of these little critters for that much. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's like a happy meal, but I consider sparrows to be the Taco Bell of the Jewish community. All right? That's the picture Jesus is using. I mean, he's assuming that the disciples are hearing him, and what they're thinking is sparrows aren't worth the time it takes to look at them. They're worthless. For, for less than a penny, I can buy two of them and eat them. If you're a soft, bleeding heart for animals, try not to think about them eating the sparrow. It's okay. The idea here is the valuelessness of those little birds. And yet we find an incredible truth in verse number 29. Look at the second half of the verse in verse 29. Because we find a statement that is a theological statement. You can't run away from this. Don't brush over it. Don't fly by it and miss it. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So here's the theological truth that Jesus is presenting. You know the the insignificance of these sparrows. But none of them die. Fall from the sky here. References a permanent fall for the bird. None of them fall. None of them are dead without the father being aware and involved in it apart from him. Nothing like that happens. In other words, Jesus says God's sovereignty, his providential control of all that takes place in human history even extends to 0.44 for two sparrows. 
we find in the Old Testament that the providential sovereignty of God extends even to the rolling of dice. The sovereignty and the personal sovereignty of your father, Jesus references here, is the intimate awareness of God's people that there is a theological reality that guards and comforts them in the face of persecution on the kingdom mission. Verse 30 goes on, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. You think the birds are significant? You think their lives matter in the scope of God's providential control that nothing happens to them apart from Him? He knows the number of your hairs on your head. That is how intimately He knows you. He has created you and He is not a deistic evolutionary God who has set the world in motion and then steps back to watch it unwind. He has created you. He has redeemed you as His own. And He intimately cares for you. So much is said today of self-worth. That what people need is self-valuing. The Scriptures have an entirely different message. What is desperately needed today is a devaluation of self to the point of nothingness. Losing our life so that we might gain it. And a total valuing of God with our lives and our allegiance and our worship and our following to the place where we find our value and our sufficiency. Not in ourselves. Not in our abilities. But in the intimate love and care that is ours through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the Savior presents for the disciples who are about to embark on the kingdom mission. And he presents for you and for me this morning theology to offset our fear. You are not alone when you're sharing the gospel with your neighbor for the fourth time. The one who knows how many hairs you have on your head is watching. That's not to be fearful. That's not to scare you. That's not to think he's lurking about. He's watching with the loving care of a father, your heavenly father. And it is to embolden you, give you courage to wipe away fear in the face of being persecuted. If we go to prison. If we go to prison for the gospel, as I just read in World Magazine about a man in San Francisco who went 19 days in prison because he refused to plead guilty to a charge that was false because he stood in front of an abortion clinic and shared the gospel with ladies who were coming in. He went to prison for 19 days. And if we we're going to do that without fear and maximize the opportunity, he saw several prisoners led to Christ during those 19 days. It will be because we are conscious of these truths. The truth will be exposed in the end. Nothing that's hidden will be un, not uncovered. Everything will be known. The enemies will be punished. There is a judge who stands over eternity. And it's not the person persecuting me. And thirdly, I am valued as God's child. Not because of my own worth. Not because he's impressed. But because of his son who is my substitute. Who stands in for me. The implications of this theology are very clear in verse 31. Therefore, because that's true, here's the command. And this is a command. Fear not. No fear is allowable for us. You 
are of more value than many sparrows. The argument here is from lesser to greater, right? Jesus is presenting a picture that is, that is going to leave you without an argument. Are the sparrows important? Not really. Are they under the control of a providential sovereign God? Absolutely. Therefore, if those worthless, insignificant little birds are under the care of him and not one of them dies apart from his knowledge and will and direction, then surely you and me as kingdom citizens, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as those who are faithful and proclaim the gospel are being watched and are valued by our Heavenly Father. That's the theology that drives away fear. The missionaries are valued. Therefore, fear is not allowed Matthew uses the understatement here, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then he just leaves the idea. I love Matthew. He just says stuff, leaves it in one sentence, and then moves on. The idea here is an understatement for the point of emphasis. Of course, we are of more value. Don Carson, such a helpful commentator on this section, says, People say that God cares about the big things, but about the little details, he is not involved. But Jesus says that God's sovereignty over the tiniest detail should give us confidence that he's also superintending the larger matters. So instead of thinking that God's all about the big stuff, but I'm a little stuff in my workplace where I go out for coffee with my coworkers and I'm mocked and I'm laughed at and and now I'm known as the Bible thumper and I'm 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 kept from promotion or my family members who resist me and who give me a cold shoulder and no longer invite me to certain events. Those are just tiny things. I mean, come on. I'm just a little nobody in the middle of the Central Valley in California, in the United States, in the western side of the world. Come on. Jesus says, the sparrows are watched. So are you. Don't be afraid. You can do it. Your sovereign God is caring for you. God's sovereignty is fearful It is scary to the evildoers, to those who are not reconciled with him because he will judge them and their conscience is offended by his judgment. But it is the sweet comfort for the kingdom citizens. Take your Bible and go to Romans chapter 8 this morning quickly. Romans chapter 8. Let me show you something here that I hope will become clear and resonate with you more and more and more as we walk together here at Grace Church as a family. We are so familiar with this section. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And some of you are kind of turning there, and your page just flops open there because you're so familiar. But let's read this, and let me draw some parallel conclusions from this section. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to His purpose. Say, now, what is the good of all things for the Christian? Which is Paul's reference here. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul's point here is that you can be confident that everything that takes place in your life as a believer is for good. Say, how can that be? How can this tragedy, this trial in my life 
be anything good? How could I ever consider it and have joy in the midst of this trial? Because I am confident that my predestination has been to the conformity to the image of my Savior. Therefore, I know that no matter what takes place in my life, no matter what happens in my circumstance, it is for the purpose of shaping me more into the image of my Savior. So the more I suffer, the more I'm like Christ. The more I'm grieved and burdened, the more I'm like Christ. The more I am consumed with the precious truths of the gospel, the more I'm like Christ. The more dedicated I am to the kingdom purposes, the more I'm like Christ. Everything about my life is about shaping, molding me into the person of Christ. Now, with these truths in our minds, Paul rehearses the simple truths of the gospel and those, verse 30, whom he chose, whom he predestined, that is in eternity past. He also called, that is the effectual call, the moment at which you were brought to Christ. Your heart was awakened. Your eyes were opened. Your ears were opened. And you, you could do nothing but worship. You could do nothing but repent and believe. If you don't recall that moment, those times, I beg of you to consider, make your calling and election sure. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That is, He completed the process and He will Complete the process in us who are yet alive as well. Verse 31. Now the conclusion. Because those things are true. Now notice Paul's logic in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now notice what verse 30, verse 36 says. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35 says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is not our love for God. That is God's love for us in Christ Jesus. You see the implication here? If we are in fact kingdom citizens, it is because He has chosen us. He has called us. He has justified us. And ultimately He is in the process of sanctifying us until He glorifies us. And because those things are true. Because those gospel realities are are genuine realities for us as Christians. We can be confident that the implications that we find in verses 31 through 39 are also true of us. We can be confident that there is no persecution that could separate us from Christ's love. We can be confident that there could be no charge brought against us. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
Upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. It's Christ. It's the Gospel. And it is the centerpiece of Jesus' theology when He says, Your Father in Heaven knows the numbers of your hairs and He values you more than sparrows. You say, how could I ever live in that reality? Embrace the Gospel every single day in all of its glory. Preach the Gospel to yourself every morning. Who am I? I'm a sinner. Who is God? He's my creator and he is my judge. Who is Christ? He's my substitute. He's the very perfect son of God who stood in for me. What does that mean? It means I follow him. It means I'm not afraid. It means my life has a radical, transformed perspective. It means that I am watched and cared for by the sovereign creator with whom before Christ I was an enemy. This is powerful truth. And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus hammers that truth home. The missionaries will be valued. The gospel, folks, listen, the gospel must come to bear on your life. The gospel is not for back then when you got saved. It's for right here when you're growing. We will beat this horse and it will never die. So get ready for it. The gospel is for now. And Jesus is placing that implication directly on us here. Now, let's move on to verse 32 in chapter 10. And the fourth and final truth. The faithful will be vindicated. The truth will be known. The enemies will be destroyed. The missionaries will be valued. And fourthly, in verse 32 and verse 33, the faithful will be vindicated. If we're to be emboldened by the fact that the truth will be revealed in the end then this presents us with the accountability that not only will the truth be revealed, but there will be a judgment according to that truth. There there actually is coming a day of judgment. It is really appointed to man to die. And after he dies, he will be judged. And so Jesus places that truth before his disciples. And he gives them this encouragement. The faithful will be vindicated. Verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges or confesses me Before men, I also will acknowledge or confess before my Father who is in heaven. But the contra is equally true. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus here clearly gives us the big picture that he's driving at. He's no longer just talking to the twelve. He's talking to them about the grand scheme of the kingdom mission. Everyone throughout all the ages... Everyone at Grace Church, everyone sitting in a green chair in Kingsburg, California, in a little theater at Kingsburg High School, who acknowledges me before men, can be confident that I will vindicate them. I will also acknowledge them. It will not be unnoticed. They will be vindicated. And it's equally true for those same people, for us, that if we are deniers, if the label of our life is a denial of Jesus Christ, He will deny us. There will be many who say, Lord, Lord, on that day, and he will cast them into eternal darkness. There will be many, Matthew says, who will say we've done X, Y, and Z in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You denier of me. Acknowledge, and you'll be acknowledged 
deny and you'll be denied. Acknowledgement of Jesus Christ before men is the proof positive that you know and follow Jesus Christ. The boldness and the courage in the face of persecution cannot be mustered up. It will not be mustered up by those who are not genuinely converted, who will publicly confess that Jesus is who he said he was and that the gospel is true. This entire interchange in verse 32 and 33, this entire situation of acknowledging and, and then acknowledging and denying and then denying, it revolves around one person. Jesus. Notice that he's not saying your father in verses 32 and 35 or 30, 32 and 33. He says what? My father. You see, Jesus here is the center. What you say about me will directly influence what I say about you to my father. There will be a vindication of the faithful and there will be a condemnation of the unfaithful. And this should fill us with courage. Because our mission will not be unnoticed. Our mission will be matched with the acknowledgement of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Humanity's eternal position has everything to do with their response to and faithful defense of the person of Jesus Christ. Confession has always been a Christian, a Christian activity. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for I am, I'm confident that it's the power of God unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of it. Paul boldly, boldly proclaimed the gospel. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Whosoever confesses, that, that is a natural response. Whether it be at the baptism of a new believer who is confessing their newfound allegiance in Jesus Christ. Or whether it be the ongoing confession of the believer. This is... This is a natural way for a Christian. And sadly, what we find in this text is that there are, in fact, those who are professors of Christ, but not confessors of Christ. There are those who say they follow him and yet they deny him. Denial of Christ can be clearly seen in a number of different ways in our life. Consider these as opportunities for denial of Jesus Christ. What about your silence? When others speak of your Savior. I mean, we get really hard on Peter at the fire. But there were ten other genuine followers of Christ who weren't at the fire. You know why? Because they denied him. They fled. Matthew says in, in the latter part of the book, Matthew chapter 25, he says, and they all ran. They denied Jesus. They were all restored. Their temporary denial was, was overcome by the lifestyle which they lived, confessing and acknowledging Jesus Christ. But silence can be a form of denial. Lifestyle in the way we live can deny our, our profession that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our life. This is a question that ought to be on our hearts and on our lips for ourselves and for others. You say you believe this. What then are the implications that would prove it in your life? You say, how do I interact with my, my, my family members who have for the longest time, as long as I've been alive, they've said they are Christians. And they've always used that. Whenever I start to talk about the gospel, it's like, well, I'm a Christian. 
Well, the Bible does not give a Christianity that, not, that doesn't imply a lifestyle that matches that profession. So the question is, do you deny or do you acknowledge Jesus Christ with your life? Your profession is tested by your life. And thirdly, of course, there is the public denial, the words. Peter was guilty. He was at the fire. And three times they said, you're one of those followers. And three times he said, no. And the last time he threw in as many epitaphs as he could throw in there, as many swear words as he could get out, as many different phrases as he could try to confirm in his Galilean old school way to say, I'm not one of his. We can deny with our words. And we are guilty of this. Are you one of those Christians? And by those, the word those Christians, you get real nervous. And you want to say, no, I'm not one of those. I'm one of these kind. I'm not one of those kind. We deny with our words. Are you a follower of Christ? Or are you a denier of Christ? What does your missionary lifestyle say about your loyalty Do you gain confidence because the faithful will be vindicated in verse 32? Or do you gain fear of the day of judgment because those who deny will be denied in verse 33? That is the question. And I cannot answer it for you. The Spirit will convict accordingly. Which courtroom is more fearful for you? Heaven or humanity? Tomorrow, when you interact with those that may claim to be Christians who show no fruits of Christianity or those who would never claim to be Christians and you interact with them and you have you have a myriad of opportunities. Maybe we should stop praying for opportunities and start praying for courage. You have a myriad of opportunities. What courtroom are you more scared of and more aware of in that moment? If you are consumed with the scriptures, if the word is renewing your mind and your thoughts are set on heavenly realities, then your fear will be on that day and your comfort will be on the vindication of that day. And this courtroom is just a puny human courtroom of co-workers, family members, friends or enemies or whatever. Therefore, I am courageous on this kingdom mission, though I may be persecuted. So what? What is the conclusion of this text? I pray every single Sunday morning for those of you who are here who are not followers of Christ. And I don't know who you are. But if you're here this morning and your conscience is condemned again under the word of the living God and you are reminded again that there has never been, there has never been a radical transformation of your affections, of your priorities, of the the mission of your life. This is as foreign as can be to you. Then this morning, let me challenge you. Every breath you breathe is a gracious gift from your creator who is also your judge. You say, God's never been gracious to me. Are you sitting here? Am I standing here? We are sinful humanity. He has no cause for patience. He has no cause to sustain us other than to show his glory through graciously redeeming out of sinful humanity a people for himself that will spend eternity declaring his grace. Otherwise, we go, all of us, into an eternal hell. Every breath you breathe is a gracious gift from the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, 
You were created to worship him and your sin has led and is leading you to worship anything other than your creator. So let me let me graciously, I trust and humbly as a sinner to sinners. Let me communicate a few things for you and then we're done. If you're if if, if you will turn this morning away from worshiping yourself and all of your your idols, all the things that you love and care about and all the priorities of your life, if you will turn your back on those in your condemnation and you will believe that Jesus Christ is in fact the very Son of God who really did come and die for those who would place their faith in Him to be forgiven and to be granted righteousness. If, if you'll believe that, what you cannot see, which is, is called faith, if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ and His work, if you'll believe that there really was an empty tomb and, and, and that He is risen and He gives eternal life. This is amazing. This is just flat out silly to the world. And this is ridiculous to the Jews who cannot handle Jesus being that person. But God will save you. He'll forgive you. He will redeem you. He will buy you back from the bondage of your sin. You have no choice in this moment but to sin. But if you will turn your eyes and He will give you eyes to see and ears to hear and if He will give you a heart to believe, He will forgive you. You will know life where you have known only death. Unbeliever this morning, if you'll trust Christ, you'll know freedom where you've known only bondage. You'll actually be able to apply these texts and live in obedience for the glory of God. You'll know justification when you've known only condemnation. Your conscience will be cleared before God. You will no longer sit in every mention of the judgment in terror, knowing that you will stand before the judge and you may say, Lord, Lord, I went to Grace Church. That'll be gone. And there will be the reality of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. For those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. This can be yours. If you will but repent and believe. You say, what is repentance? Turn away from what you have placed your confidence in, your pursuit after, your love for. Turn away and run to Christ, the Savior the one true Savior for your sins. Believers, you're here this morning and that is your testimony. God has awakened you. He has given you eyes to see and ears to hear. And you have come to the end of yourself and you are pursuing Christ and you do believe and, and you glory in that reality and yet you're faced with this text and you're faced with your own sinful humanity that is still present in your flesh and you're faced with the struggle of what I desire to do, I don't do. And what, when I desire to share the gospel and the kingdom mission, I don't do it. And when I desire to be bold, I'm afraid. This passage confronts you as well. And while unbelievers, you must repent and believe. Believers, as the old trusty song goes, you must trust and obey. Believe your Savior. Believe Him. Place your faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ talking to you. Believe Him. Ask that the Holy Spirit would so grip your heart with these realities that your theology would, would give life to your courage on the kingdom mission. 
trust, and obey. The gospel of Jesus Christ must remain central for obedience to happen this morning. For us to be doers of the word. Retired seniors. I don't do this often, but in my study this week, I thought of each of the categories, or at least I hope I don't offend you by putting you in categories. Seniors this morning, 60 and and up, trust Jesus and fearlessly engage your culture with the kingdom mission. That's scary, isn't it? You're at the stage of life where you have known your friends twice as long as your pastor's been alive. (laughs) I mean, come on. Some of you, we don't like to talk about the gap between us. You're gracious to even be sitting here. Trust your Lord and engage those friends with the kingdom mission fearlessly because of these theological truths. Middle-aged people here this morning, you 40-somethings and 50-somethings, by the way, I found out 50 is the new 40, so that's good news. Um, don't know what that means. I think that's a nebulous, non-truth statement. But hey, be encouraged. 40s and 50s, trust Jesus and fearlessly engage your culture with the kingdom mission. You're respected in your workplace. You're known. You now have a reputation. At this point, you are who you are. Allow humility to lead you to be something other than you've been and courageously take up the mission like you've never taken it up before. Come persecution or come blessing. Go fearlessly because you trust your Savior. You 20-somethings to 40-somethings. I put here young. I, I, I don't want to do that. That's, that's not fair. My age group, my peer group, Trust Jesus and fearlessly engage your culture with the kingdom mission. We are pressured on every side to live the the American dream. Kick the American dream to the curb and live the kingdom mission. Don't waste your life and give up your earthly treasures at the the judgment seat of Christ and say, this is what I did. I I got a nice house and a couple of SUVs and my kids played really good soccer on the team and, and I had a good job and I made a great salary so we went on nice vacations and it was awesome. And I wasted my life because I didn't live for the kingdom, for the Savior who had redeemed me, who had given me life. Young couples, trust the Lord. Believe and obey Engage your friends. Engage your peer group. Go out to dinner and actually talk about your love for Christ. Pray for courage. Consume your thoughts with these passages and then actually say something. And we'll know the blessing of our Father who is watching us, who numbers our hairs on our head. Students that are here today, singles, 13 to 20s, Trust Jesus and fearlessly engage your culture with the kingdom mission. It's terrifying for you to do anything different than everybody else is doing. I remember my mom used to get on me because I would come out of the bathroom with a new hairstyle and she would say, who had that yesterday at school? (laughs) I just didn't want to look different and I already did. I was six foot one and weighed a buck 25. I mean, I was already sticking out like a sore thumb. So she was right. I combed my hair because Josh or Jason or somebody combed their hair that way, so I wanted to have mine. It's hard to do anything different. But let me guarantee you this, you will know no joy 
like the joy you will receive from being faithful in your youth to the kingdom mission, to living your youth in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. Be different for the glory of God, not just to be different. Don't draw attention to yourself. Draw attention to God. Be a ninth grader that's consumed with the gospel. Go give your life away for this. Because these truths are, in fact, true. That Jesus has spoken here. Lean upon the gospel. This week, all of you, me included, for the grace needed to walk in obedience. The precious Savior is sufficient for this week. He's given us enough grace. There will be new mercy every morning. And He is more than worthy of our sacrifice. I am praying for faithfulness in my own life this week. To seek out opportunities and to be courageous when I'm confronted with them. I'm praying for you to do the same. Isaiah 41.10 is a promise to the nation of Israel. It rings true for those of us who are brought in the new covenant. We're grafted in to the promises given to Abraham. Fear not Israel, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not, for I am with you. What drives out fear is the the reality of God. It is a theological issue for us this morning and this week. And I trust we will never, ever give any other excuse for our fear than what we've been presented with in these last weeks from Matthew chapter 10. And the words of our Lord recorded in verses 26 through 33. Father, this has not been justice to these texts. We have only briefly considered them. And yet, we are aware of our deficiency. We are aware of our need for grace. We are confronted with our yellow-bellied Christianity with our soft-tailed American version of being Christ followers. Our fear of ever confronting any kind of persecution. Father, do a work in our hearts. May the gospel consume us. May we be aware of the grace that is available at the cross. May we be aware of what Christ has accomplished. The one who chose us, who called us, who justified us, and who ultimately will glorify us and is in the process of sanctifying us even now. May those truths so grab our hearts this week that we are able to ask with Paul, who can condemn us? No one because of Christ. Who can separate us? No one because of Christ. Can persecution do it? No, Father, we want to have theology that drives away fear so that we are emboldened for the mission of our lives, which is to declare the glories of your name through the grace seen in your son and his work. This is what we long for. This is what we were made for. We ask that you would continue the work you have begun in us until you bring it to completion. Father, I pray. I pray this morning for those who are wearing masks who are frauds, who merge in with your people and who desire to be looked upon as your people but don't know you. Remove the arrogance of hypocrisy and break them so that they come to repentance. For those who have never acknowledged you, never made any profession of faith, never ever perceive themselves to be your followers, give them eyes to see, 
and ears to hear because only you can do that redeeming work. So we rest in you and ask you to accomplish it. Oh, how we want to bring glory to you. May your word renew our minds. May it be the mirror that we have looked in and allowed it to influence our actions. May we be doers and not hearers only. Fearing not, for you are with us. Not being dismayed, because you are our God. You will strengthen us and you will help us and you will uphold us with your righteous right hand. We confess it to be true. Teach us to believe that this week. We pray for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.